She's ours, Slip! She's ours! First, we get the buzzards off her back! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, the explosive javelin buzzing by the ear of Mad Max Free Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 22, which begins with the buzzards bringing in their heavy hitter, and it ends with a buggy dancing around like a hooked fish. (laughs) Good Monday morning, Julia. Happy Monday. So I've been listening to the You Are Awaited podcast for this latest round of episodes that I've listened to. There are a couple of things that popped up. First and foremost, I'm incredibly jealous of the fact that they were in LA at just the right time. They got to go see a screening of Fury Road with a Q&A afterwards featuring George Miller. Ooh, yeah, I'm definitely jealous of that. Right place, right time, once in a lifetime opportunity. And I hate to break it to you, but I don't think New Hampshire is ever going to be the right place at the right time. Oh, I don't even think Boston would be the right place at the right time. We would probably have to go down to New York City, and that's an incredible maybe. So if George Miller ever does come out with Wasteland or whatever the next one is supposed to be called, yeah, I don't think he's ever going to do something like that. Nope. They had an episode with a special guest star, and they were talking about the entirety of the movie, just like you said would happen. And... They called attention to the fact that Fury Road is the story of someone who was deeply embedded in an oppressive system and then chose to fight it. Like, they had this change of heart. So they're talking about Furiosa, how she was taken by Immortan Joe, inducted into this society, and then rose through the ranks and then decided to turn against it. And one thing that they do on the You Are Awaited podcast is they talk about Star Wars Just about as much as any other movie-by-minute style podcast, except they don't like Star Wars. Oh, huh. And in The Force Awakens, you have the story of Finn, who was raised in a certain organization, being the First Order. And, of course, he has a change of heart after his first assignment and then starts fighting against it. The major difference between that and Furiosa, though, is that Finn had a pretty cussy position and then got cold feet his first time out and then freaked out and ran away whereas furiosa has been around for all this time and then she made this decision to go along with these people to fight well it doesn't seem to be a very rare storytelling device i think it's a distinctly human position to find oneself in Mm -hmm. as long as there have been societies there have been oppressive societies And as long as there have been oppressive societies, and as long as there still are oppressive societies, there will be people who are raised, indoctrinated from the beginning, raised up through the ranks, and then change their mind. It happens all the time, both in real life and in media. I think what you see more commonly is the outsider or the person who has always been fighting against the oppressive system. Take, going back to Star Wars, Luke Skywalker. He's always been on the periphery of the Empire, and then he's brought into the Rebellion and fights against it. It's the same situation with Max. He has no affiliation with Immortan Joe. He's just had this association thrust on him. So his story is one that we see a lot of. Furiosa's would be like watching Road Warrior, and at some point Wes 
turning against the Lord Humongous and allying himself with Max to accomplish something. And the reason that both of these protagonists are our protagonists is because both of them fall under the course of the hero with a thousand faces. They are both classic Joseph Campbell characters. Mm. Their journeys look very different, but the beauty of the hero's journey is that there's room to maneuver within that journey. So we see two different types of journeys that both follow that course. They found that really novel when they were talking about it. Another thing that they brought up was the idea that Furiosa doesn't necessarily lie to Ace, that when she's dealing with him, she'll tell him things like, we're heading east, or it's a detour. And while those things aren't necessarily the whole truth, they're not also completely lies. And they suspect that Furiosa and Ace have been working together for a long time, and that she has a respect for him as an individual, that she wouldn't want to treat him that way, just right out and out lying to him, even though she knows that if he were to discover that she betrayed a Morton Joe, that he would turn on her. That tells me something about Ace's character, and I'm pretty sure we kind of touched on this point when we were discussing Ace last week, that there is something honorable about him. We see it again this week. On Wednesday, when Morsov dies, Ace takes a moment to honor him Mm -hmm. because yes this is a brutal comma crazy society but ace was his captain and he has respect for losing a good soldier yeah i'm trying to think of other situations where the hero is betraying the antagonist and yet they can't bring themselves to vilify the people that are under the antagonist nothing's coming to mind It reminds me of something that's just always kind of existed in my head, and I'm really not sure where it came from. I think it's a real-life story. I don't think it came from a movie or a show about, during World War II, an encounter, maybe an American military individual encountered a German military individual and was going to shoot him on sight, or something. I really can't quite put my finger on it. But the German soldier said, no, 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 please don't shoot me. I'm not a Nazi. I'm just a German soldier. Yet he was a German soldier doing what he was supposed to do. He was not affiliated with the Nazis. And there's a distinction. There's people who are there doing a job who have some level of honor for what they're doing for the people they work for, but don't necessarily associate themselves with the bonkers ideologies of the people at the top who are telling them what to do. Okay. I kind of see Ace like that. He's doing a job, but... His own honor of doing the job is separate from the ideology of the cult. Put a pin in that. Yeah. Because I definitely want to bring it up on Wednesday when we're seeing how Ace reacts to Morsov. In the meantime, we should probably get back to the minute at hand, because I always like to sideline us on these Monday mornings when it's just the two of us. (laughs) When we wrapped on Friday, we had these burning wreckages disappearing into the distance and the buzzards arrived in their giant vehicle, their excavator, as I like to call it. Oh yeah, that seems like the right word. I got a very distinct vibe from this machine. This machine felt like it was created by a kid playing with his Legos, taking a couple of his construction sets and mashing them together into... Some sort of weird hybrid that 
physics says probably shouldn't work, but it does <laughs> because they're Legos. I love the design of this thing because it's so blatantly a six-wheeled truck with a backhoe dropped on it. Probably either welded or bolted in place, but definitely one of those things where if they swung it too wildly or extended it too far in one direction, they could definitely tip themselves over. But having the hydraulic arm, they'd be able to right themselves again. <laughs> I like the visual that I just got of the drivers practicing, mm -hmm. like tipping themselves over on purpose and then practicing riding themselves quickly so that when they're doing battle, if they should accidentally fall over, they could be quick and efficient about it. As quick and efficient as you can be when you can't be driving forward. That's for sure. Yeah. I was thinking about this vehicle and how industrial it feels. And I almost want to amend my idea when we started talking about the buzzards we thought oh well just maybe they're refugees that sailed down to australia after the calamity but what if they were sailors and their families working on like a container ship i know families don't usually sail on container ships but maybe they saw the writing in the wall and said hey come with me on this delivery and then off they went so they're in this container ship full of construction equipment, backhoes and tractors and things like that. They sail down to Sydney, they dock, and then while they're there unloading their wares or whatever, calamity hits and the world goes to hell, and suddenly they're just stranded in Sydney with all of this construction equipment. Maybe they've got some weird sun thing that Mark talked about when we had him on the show, and that's how you get this group of Russian-speaking subterranean people that drive vehicles that are covered in welded spikes. <laughs> I think that there have been a couple of steps of evolution. We ourselves have seen society go through different phases, and the Citadel didn't pop into existence as is after the Calamity. It would be mildly interesting, I think, to get a quick backstory on the Buzzards and how they came to be Russian and how they came to be allergic to the sun how they became the buzzards i don't need a big long backstory i would be happy with a few sentences you know what would be really cool to see narrated vignettes of just backstory take three to five minutes have it be animatic style 2d animation with slight motion and whatnot and just have those as a supplement where you can grab someone from the movie and just grab any voiceover person wherever and just be like, oh, hey, here is the story of the buzzards. And here is this little animated vignette, sort of like what they did with the Watchmen comic when they took the panels and animated those and did yeah. the voiceover. Do something like that, but have it be little backstory segments for Fury Road. I feel like that would be a really fun project and something you could release on an official youtube page or as dvd blu-ray extras or something mm -hmm. like that just to flesh out all of these little ideas that george miller has floating around in his head or his notebooks or anything like that and just get them out into the world that way they don't disappear it would be a shame to lose that information that imagination george miller has said a couple of times many times that there is so much information, there is backstory, there is lore, there is world building that just doesn't get used. And maybe it's not needed, but it would be a shame to lose it. I could see a little animated segment about, okay, hey, let's talk about the Great Northern Tribe. And we can catch up with all of the characters 
what happened to them after Road Warrior. Let's talk about the tribe that left and talk about them living above ground in Sydney, or the tribe that was left behind, the rest of the waiting ones, how they fared in their little oasis. You could do these little lore videos very easily, I think. I think that something that might be a little bit more plausible, because it has already occurred, is comics. That's a good point. They have already done this exact same thing in the form of the comics. So that would be cool if so there we're just, were more. We're just going back to what we said back in week one. Yeah. That we need more comics. Yes. Keep Mark Sexton drawing. Exactly. As the excavator is advancing on the war rig, the guy sitting on the fuel pod, which I'm pretty sure is Morsav, he gives a little, I guess, a test plume. Is that what you call it when you shoot a flamethrower, you plume it out? I don't know. But just to test the water a little bit, just to see, okay, can I hurt this thing with the flamethrower? Let's shoot at it a little bit. And he doesn't do a sustained blast because this thing is probably pretty solid. I think this world, while especially in this movie, does feel infinite, is not infinite. I think there are a limited number of enemies and a limited style of how enemies fight. This particular group of enemies fights a lot with flames. So protect yourself from those flames. If you know you're going up against the Citadel. Yeah. Have solid walls with as little window opening as possible so that their Thundersticks can't get through. Thundersticks not being able to get through heavy armor is going to be the theme of this week. Absolutely. Yeah. And so flamethrowers, I definitely think, aren't going to do anything. I do appreciate Morsov's intention. He's probably sitting up there thinking that it probably won't do anything, but he's got to do his due diligence just to see. Well, Morsov seems incredibly capable. I mean, we're going to talk more about him on Wednesday, That's for true. sure. But this isn't the first time that we've seen Morsov. We know his name because he's the one who, from his post on the fuel pod, swung around to rescue one of the motorcycle war boys. He brought him back up onto the tanker, and then obviously he hightailed it back to his post. Mm -hmm. So he's something. Slit gave us a bad impression of war boys. <laughs> we have met other war boys who are just better people than Slit. We have met Ace, we've met Morsov, and we've met Nux. All three of them are just better people than Slit, who is just an asshole. Yeah, he's that jerk friend. He really is. And we're going to talk about that continuously through the next week <laughs> he does not stop and it's going to continue on in the movie before we can get talking about slit though we have a, another really wide shot inserted and i'm pretty sure it's a continuation of the shot we saw last week where they were firing up the flares this is the really high shot swooping down over the fleet and it really zooms in so we can see that it's nux another support vehicle and a motorcycle and these guys are gaining on the war rig this shot is absolutely stunning. I love, love, love it, mostly because of the sound that they put with it. While that camera is super duper high up and you can see everything going on in front of you, which is a favorite style of shot of George Miller's. I think we've seen it in like every movie so far. The music, which is the fleet music, it is the doof wagon that we're hearing with the drums and the guitar is super muted because we're pretty far away. We're pretty high up above. But as we swoop down closer, it gets clearer and louder. And it's another example in a list of never ending examples of the fantastic editing. Mm -hmm. It takes this visual style that we have seen before of George Miller's 
with these big overhead shots and the streaming dust kicked up. We've seen that before, but the sound editing that goes with it brings it to a new level. Yeah, we've never had a group quite like the Morton Joe's fleet. In the past, it's always just been engines. No, this has some style. It definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> Following the sweeping shot, we cut back down to find Nux and Slit, and they're really out in the lead as far as chasing down the war rig is concerned. And we cut in close on the front of the Nux car where we're focusing on this skull ornament. And there are people that have pointed out this in the past. This is going to be nothing new to anybody who knows Mad Max stuff. But people look at this ornament and they're like, oh, hey, that's got to be a call out to the gyro captain. And looking at it with the goggles, the leather cap, the way that the jaw is down, I see it. I see it, too. I don't necessarily think it's a call out. That's the thing. The closer I look at it, the more things pop out to me that are just different. And so I'm in this situation where I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see that as a reference. But at the same time, I'm like, it's not a close enough reference. It's not a close enough reference. Is that a spark plug at the very tip top? I think so. It's like a spark plug unicorn horn. Yeah. Do you think the pole going up through the skull, that's the bolt that's holding it on, is topped by a spark plug? It could be. Do you think it is like a talisman, a deity representative? I think it's just a fancy looking ornament made by one of the wretched in Joe's crafts workshop. Okay. It's something that's meant to show people that go up against this vehicle oh hey look it's a human skull and it's been dressed out maybe i shouldn't mess with these people you know it's going off of the whole skull motif that all of joe's vehicles really have true true so going back to the talismans and the objects and the decorations made by the wretched joe gets to walk through pick what he likes and kill who he doesn't like do you think other people also get to walk through do you think nux personally chose this piece I'd like to think so. I think it would be a little boring if it was always Joe walking through and picking out the ornaments. That seems like something he would do at his pleasure, but also something that just seems very casual. I don't know. I could see the Wretched making all of these ornaments and just holding them up for the war boys to come by and check out. Like, Joe is the most important one. Joe will choose whether you live or die, but they can just have these objects d'art sitting on a shelf somewhere for the war boys to come and grab to adorn their specific vehicles. And if things go unchosen, then the person who made it is of no use. Yeah, they could do it like a flea market style. If your cubby is still full of things, then obviously you're not making good enough things and mm, you'll get thrown from the top of the citadel. Well, then an argument could be made for quantity over quality. If you make 10 things then the likelihood of half of your things being chosen, you're still, five things are still chosen, as opposed to if you only make two things and only one thing is being chosen, which person is more valuable? Now that is entirely debatable and a debate I don't think we are qualified to have. Long story short, yeah, we see the skull. It kind of looks like the gyro captain. There you go. The more important thing is that you've got these ADR lines that are, injected into these shots this one where we tilt down from the skull to see nux and slit and then there's the shot after it where the next car is at a distance so you've got nux and he says she's ours slit she's ours 
And then Slit responds by saying, first we get the buzzards off her back. And I feel like these lines were inserted to remind us at the audience, okay, we're about to go into an action scene. We need to reinforce who is on whose side. And I did write down a note saying thanks for the exposition slit. But now that I'm evaluating again, I think they are necessary because we have three separate parties. And I think having a little bit of clarification that, yes, the fleet is after Furiosa. But before they can safely get Furiosa back, they have to get rid of the buzzards. So the ensuing fight that's about to happen without a little bit of clarification reiterating that point could be a little bit confusing. You've got to make it clear, yeah, the buzzards are the enemy, but Slit and Nux are still also the enemy. Don't get too used to them fighting alongside Furiosa because that's not going to last. Right, because this week all we see is Nux and Slit defending Furiosa. Mm -hmm. And so as they get close... Nux bangs on the side of the car and he says, form up, and then Slit, he gets his javelin at the ready and he gets this sort of ha type thing. Yeah, it's very warlike. Yeah, he's get that perfect pose going with his arm back with the javelin ready to go. And as they get closer to the buzzard vehicle, Nux speeds up so that Slit can get a better shot and he tosses that javelin just barely over Max's shoulder. Like, there is a little window between Max's head, Max's shoulder, and the Lancer's perch. And he launches a javelin right through that opening into the buzzer car. And it is so precise. It is. For as much as I don't like Slit, and I think he's a bad person, he's not a bad Lancer. He's good at what he does, which is why I'm so glad that Nux didn't let him go and be a driver. Max's reaction here... I do not like it. Really? I think that Max has spent a decent amount of this movie and a very decent percentage of his lines so far being sarcastic. And I'm not sure what the point of this line is. Not only do they not care about your head Mm -hmm. at all, they can't hear you. So that line was just for us. And it's neither funny nor charming. Secondly, Max is famous for being a mostly silent protagonist slash antihero. And even in this movie, later on, once we actually get to know Max, he is the strong silent type. But before that happens, while he's still a captive, he's like not shutting up. Yeah, he's shouting about, oh, they took my car, they took my blood, and confragamus, and he's being very vocal. It's just not Max. I can understand him being angry. It's just odd. For him to be so talkative about it, isn't it? Yeah, it it is. We've seen Max angry, actively angry. But in the past, he just gets quieter the more angry he is. I'm thinking of when Savannah was trying to leave the crack in the earth, and he took Slake's walking stick and pulled all the stuff off of it to turn it into a gun. And after he gave his little we're going to hang out here speech, he didn't say another thing. Nope. He was very frustrated with the scenario. But he was letting his actions do the talking. Which at the time frustrated us. Because in Beyond Thunderdome, he was talkative Max. So is this Max a continuation of talkative Max from Thunderdome? No. Talkative Max from Thunderdome. It's not like he never speaks with any kind of sense of humor. I mean, he is the fairy princess, after all. Mm -hmm. But that sarcastic statement had a point. He was poking the bear. Yeah. 
right in front of the bear. The bear <laughs> knew he was being poked. Here, it's for nobody's benefit. And it does us no good. We don't care. We know he's angry. That's it. That's all we need. We don't need him to be lamenting his car and his blood. We don't need him to be cursing. It's just too much. It doesn't fit the character. Yeah, I think Max tied to the front of this vehicle is just a different feeling, Max. I'm very much looking forward to in a couple of weeks when he's freed from this situation. But we've still got quite a while to go before we see that. We do. And certainly a lot of action. Mm -hmm. Following the javelin not doing much against the back of the buzzard excavator, we get a close-up on Nux, and he's got this wry little smile going on. And then we get to see his dashboard ornament, and it's bouncing around and rattling. And I find this little ornament to be rather charming. I have to agree. I think it gives the Nux car a little bit of personality. It does. More so than having a Lancer's perch in the front and the pipes on the side. It's a small thing that I could definitely see Nux pudding there. It did not occur to me until we were talking about the skull up on top that there's a decent chance this was an ornament that the wretched made that caught Nux's eye. Perhaps this ornament caught Nux's eye and the skull ornament on top caught Slit's eye. And also I want to point out that there is a craftsman on Etsy that does handmade replicas of this hood ornament oh, this yeah. dashboard ornament nice they're handmade for 120 bucks okay which seemed a little bit steep does seem a little steep does it have like a real bird skull in it no the bird skull is cast out of resin gotcha but everything else is like hand formed mm. which it kind of defeats the purpose a little bit the whole thing about this ornament is that it is made from bits and pieces yeah, of it, cars and whatnot it looks like obviously the top is bird skull the eyes are hex nuts yep and the bottom looks like the handle to a door that's the shape that i see at least yep the etsy seller does have a couple reviews on this particular item so for one it is selling fairly well and the buyers love them saying it was very well made and looked fantastic a very accurate replica they were very pleased with their purchases oh good for that person $120. I find it a little ironic that this movie prop, that the whole point of the item in that world is that it's made from scrap and found objects. And then when that's translated to the real world, it's now handcrafted and it's $120. So Slit's attack on the back of the excavator did not go unnoticed because in from the left comes the buzzard buggy that was accompanying the excavator, and they slam into the side of the Nux car. But in doing that, they also catch the attention of Morsov, who is sitting on the back of the fuel pod, and he's got a harpoon ready to go. And he fires it, and it lodges itself squarely in the middle of the buzzard car's roof. Yeah, he landed that good. And the buzzard car is going to do a little bit of swinging back and forth. There's going to be some interplay in the positioning of the cars i'm thinking to try and jiggle it loose mm. to no avail that thing sticks really securely and speaking of sticking after the harpoon goes in we cut back over to the nux car and slit has a javelin ready to go and he jabs it into the side of the buzzard car and i say jab because i thought he threw but no he takes the pole and he's close enough to the buzzard car that he just sort of pokes the top, really? and he holds on to the end of the pole, because 
in the next shot where we're seeing Morsov celebrating the fact that he hooked this car and he saw an explosion on it, he's all excited and we're focused on him. But if you look over to the left, Slit has the end of that javelin and he takes the pole and he puts it back in the rack so that later on, seemingly, they can put a new charge on the end of it. Waste not, want not. Excellent. It's very economical. It is very economical. This moment, I think, is an important moment for what happens on Wednesday that Morsov made a very successful move at the same time that Slit made a less successful move. Yeah, this is not the last time that Morsov is going to do something productive and then Slit has to almost immediately follow it up with his own contribution. Mm -hmm. So this buzzer car starts swerving wildly and right around the 57 second mark, The buzzard car swerves over to the left, and I think they're doing exactly what you said. They're trying to shake the harpoon loose, but they're probably also trying to use the metal spikes on the car to cut the line that's attaching it. But the buzzard car makes a noise, and I'm going to have to throw in the audio clips as I'm editing this episode because I swear it sounds exactly like the sound effect used when the Millennium Falcon fails to jump to hyperdrive. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll be an interesting comparison. That sort of wheezing engine sound. Mm -hmm. So I'll pull the audio from the minute and I'll put it here. And then I'll pull the audio from the Millennium Falcon and I'll put it here. Punch it. And you lovely folks listening at home, compare and contrast the two to your heart's content. And that wild swerving brings us to the end of this minute. They go out to the left, they turn their wheels, they're coming back to the right. Nux is going to break before he gets smashed by the buzzards this time around. But what happens after that is strictly Wednesday. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 22 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.